Amen. I mean, how do you follow that bumper? I mean, that is massive. Guys, welcome. If you're new, welcome. We're glad you're here. Whether you're watching online or in the lobby or you're in this room, look around. It's packed in this room, and that's after we launched our Saturday night service. Last night, we had 370 people on campus last night. Incredible first launch. Uh, and guys, just so you know, if you've been around for a long time, this is the service. If somebody's going to come for the first time and they're going to sleep in, and they're going to they're come right at the 11 o'clock, okay? This is going to be the most likely service for someone to come for the first time. So if that's you, stand up. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, we, uh, we, we, we're glad you're here. Uh, if, if you, ha- I want you to just know, we have two options. We have a Sunday night option now and a Saturday night option uh, to create more space. Because here's the truth. An open seat is an open door for discipleship. And if we don't have a seat for someone, that means we don't have a place for someone. If we don't have a place for someone, then we can't disciple them right? It's called organizational hospitality. That's what we want to be. We want every person who comes to this church for it to be so clear. We were waiting for you. We knew you were coming. We were expecting you. We've got a place for you. So I just want to say thank you guys for being a part of this. This is a whole new season and stage in the life of our church. And, and we're moving right now, right? We're moving from summertime to school year, right? And all the students are really sad about that. And all the parents are really happy about that, right? Unless you homeschool, like, it gets harder. Okay, right? Uh, there is no break. Um, and, and so what we're doing, guys, we want to give you a tool. So when you got in here, right, you kind of got in here and it, it looked like Halloween. You're like, well, why is there black and, and orange cards on, on, on the seats? It's because we wanted to give you guys this. If you'll grab this, so grab this and, and look at it. Some of you, if you're under 40, you go, what is this? This is a bookmark, right? <laughs> it doesn't fit in my Kindle. It doesn't work on my iPad. What do I, how does it fit into my computer? It doesn't. You, there's this thing called a codex book. Okay, and and when you would read, you would put this in it to mark the spot where you read. This is a bookmark. We'd encourage you guys to use it in your Bibles, and uh, and it's got so on the front of it it says Frank. Okay, and I know you're like, doesn't Frank? Isn't that with a K? No, we're spelling it with a C because uh, it stands for your friends and your relatives, your acquaintances, your neighbors, your classmates, your coworkers. This is a tool to help you and me to be more personally faithful, to be evangelistic, to reach out to people who are far from God and close to us. Okay. I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but I mean, I'm going to say probably most of us struggle with that. This is a home, not a prison. If you don't want to use it, that's fine, okay? If you have a better method, if you have a better tool, if you have a better resource for evangelism, please use that. What we find is most Christians don't. There was was a guy named D.L. Moody. He was a famous evangelist. And, And some lady walked up to him one time and she said, you know what, Mr. Moody, I don't like how you do your evangelism. And he said, well, okay, how do you do yours? She thought about it for a second. She said, I don't. He goes, I like my way of doing it more than your way of not doing it. Isn't that great? And all we're trying to say is, hey, listen, if there's a better way, do it. We want to give you this as a resource and as a tool. This is a great time of the year, and it's a great series to invite someone far from God close to you. On the back, it says, bless. Those are the different ways that you can reach out to people. And and it won't bother me if while I'm teaching today up here or at any moment, you just want to write down a few names. And we hope that that'll be a resource God always in the Old Testament is giving people kind of resources, stones, different things to remember what they're called to do. Hope this will be a resource that'll be helpful to you. I'm going to pray for us. And and as I do, I just want to let you know that today, this week, we started our our 10 residents have come on our staff team. They're going to be here for two years. And what our residency is, it's how we invest in the leaders of tomorrow today. And so we're really excited about these 10 people. We're gonna, you're going you're gonna to meet them at the end of the service. And they're making a two-year commitment to be on our staff to learn the ministry and see where God might move them next. 
Let's take a moment, pray for them, and pray for these cards. Lord, thank you for these cards. Thank you for the opportunity to, to have something that will remind us that we're called, Lord, to be salt and light. We're called to be in the world and not of it. We're called for our faith to be very, very personal, but also very, very public. We're called to care about people. We're called to, to tell people about the hope that we have in Christ. We're called to share our testimonies, Lord. I pray you would help us to, to make the mission real by writing some names down of people who are far from God and close to us. Lord, I pray that we would think through ways we can pray for them, listen to them, eat with them, serve them, and mostly our, our great hope is to share with them the hope that we have in Christ. pray this in your name. Amen. You can type to, turn to, you can scroll to, you can swipe to, okay, whatever you want to do. If you do have one of those regular Bibles, you can flip to 1 Corinthians. If you're new, welcome. This is what we do. We're going to be in this series uh, for about 11 weeks or until right around Halloween or Reformation Day, whatever you want to call it, okay? Right until the end of October. So by the way, if you're new, if you're watching online, you're here for the first time, you can't, not just you, but anyone can't, um, know what a church is about or really get to know a church based on one Sunday, based on one sermon. You have to really stick and stay for a whole series. So let me just encourage you to do that. Come back throughout this whole series. And if you're not in a community group, you'll need to go through our weekender to get into a group. But you won't, respectfully, you won't get all that you could out of this series if you're not in a community group. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, okay? And now why are we calling this, this series Christ Culture in the Church? Here's why. Because the same problem in the Corinthian church, which we're going to be studying for 11 weeks, is the same problem in the American church. It's that God has designed the church to influence the culture. But what keeps happening is the culture is having a greater influence on the church, right? I mean, most American Christians are exactly that. They're more American than they are Christian in basically every area of their life. And we're looking at this church because you can learn a lot from good examples and you can learn a lot from bad examples, right? Like there are people in your life, you're like, I want to be like her. And there are other people in your life, you go, I never want to be like them, right? And every time something terrible happens, right? Somebody wrecks their life. We all have that feeling of like, that's terrible. And then you have this other feeling, like part of you says, thank God it wasn't me. And I, I could see myself having the same temptations and the same desires. And so I need to watch it very carefully. We're going to be in this book because we're going to go back to the first century. Now, have you ever heard anyone say, we got to get back to the first century church, right? We need to be like the first century church. Not if it's first Corinthians, okay? <laughs> what they mean, and I know what people mean when they say that. Here's what they mean. They mean we need to be like the book of Acts. That's what Christians say when they mean that. I want to see conversions. I want to see the Holy Spirit poured out in power. I want to see baptisms. I want to see life change. I want to see real Christian community like Acts chapter 2, and we thank God for that. But if you go to 1 Corinthians, we're going to see the most sinful and messed up church that we have recorded in the Bible, right? And, and this is good to know. They, the same problems they have are the same problems we have. They had people in their church struggling with substance abuse. They had all this deviant sexual behavior that was going on in their church. They had a lot of people who were like, hey, listen, uh, God forgives me, so what does it matter? And God's going to keep forgiving me, so like, does it really matter? Like, Why don't I just keep sinning because grace will always be there for me? They had, that. they had people fighting over spiritual gifts. They had people fighting over who the better leader was. They were defiled. They were disunified. They had division. They had disorder. And we're going to learn from them today. And it's going to be really, really helpful because here's the truth. There is no such thing as a perfect church, right? Two Cities Church is a perfect example of an imperfect church, okay? And if you find a perfect church, don't join it, you'll ruin it, okay? Because you're not perfect, right? 
There is no perfect church. If you find it, don't join it, okay, because you're in it. And so with all that in mind, I want us to see what Paul is going to do. We're, we're going we're gonna to cover the whole chapter today. We're going to kind of cover some larger portions of Scripture, and we're going to do two things every week in this series, and this is what we try to do in, in general. We're going to be looking at what problems are showing up in the church, and we're going to see how Jesus and the gospel is the answer to the problem, right? I mean, just so you know, I mean, all of your problems are ultimately gospel problems, right? I mean, overeating is a gospel issue. I mean, addiction is a gospel issue. Like, difficulty in your marriage is a gospel issue, right? It's like the Apostle Paul says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Okay, so if I'm having trouble with my marriage, I probably need to understand how God has loved me in Christ and gave himself for me, and that'll give me the strength to love my spouse, Right? Or the issue in your finances is ultimately a gospel issue, right? I mean, some of you are savers and some of you are spenders, and then you marry each other, right? The saver marries the spender, and the spender marries the saver. All the couples are looking at each other right now, right? That's right. Um, and, and it's like, well, what happens? It's like, well, how do I become generous? I have to understand how generous God has been toward me in Christ. God gave his first. God gave his best. God gave his only. Like, I really believe that. And that changes and transforms my heart that I want to be a generous person. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to get the problems of the church and we're going to be looking at how the gospel is the answer to those problems. Look at me at verse 1. Verse 1 says this. Paul starts this as he starts all of his letters. Here's what he says. Paul, you know, today we sign letters at the end with our names. Back then they wrote their name at the very beginning. Paul, I'm called by the, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So let me just tell you this a little bit about the church. Paul planted the Corinthian church in about 50 AD, which is about 20 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. So this is a, it's 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead, Paul goes to Corinth, okay? And, and we know, and, and again, if you're in a DNA group, if you're in a community group, if you just want to have a better conversation about this tonight at dinner, which I would encourage you to do as a family, read Acts 18. Acts chapter 18 is the story of Paul planting this church. And Paul planted every church the same way. First, he goes to cities. He doesn't go to suburbs. We're not against the suburbs. He doesn't go to the farmlands. He doesn't go to Yatkinville, Okay? Not against Yakinville. He, he, he comes directly into the heart of Winston-Salem or Greensboro or Charlotte or, or whatever. Why? Because at the center of a city, and this is why God, we thank God that God keeps opening doors for us to stay in the center of a city. At the center of a city is density and diversity. That's what, that, that's what a city is technically. And so what, where does education happen? Where does arts happen? Where does technology happen? Where do the young people move? Where is the mobility? Where are the ports? Everything's in the city. And Paul knew that. In fact, Paul would go to a city, he'd preach the gospel every time. It's like, we, we know the playbook. We know what to do. He goes to a city, he preaches the gospel, people believe. He says, okay, I'm going to disciple you. He would stay in the city from anywhere from three months to three years. And he would, he would disciple a, a few key believers, and actually he would not leave a city until he established elders, leadership. And then he'd leave. And then he would coach and pastor and mentor these either pastors or these churches through letter writing, and that's what we're doing here. And so th this, was, this was his vision. Now, look what it says. He's with a guy named Sosthenes, okay? You'll learn about him if you read Acts chapter 18. They, um, they were good friends, but they were more than friends, right? Paul is always the first among equals. He's always the guy to preach. He's always the leader, but he always is doing ministry together, right? You can think of Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Barnabas. Now it's Paul and Sosthenes. Now listen, uh, he, Paul had something that, I, that we want to build at our church, which is he had something more than a Christian friend. He had a gospel partner, right? There's most of us, if we're honest, we have friends who happen to be Christian. And that's nice because they don't cuss as much <laughs> as our, as our non-Christian friends do, right? 
And that's nice because they're trying to basically raise their kids the same way, and that works out. And they're in our homeschool co-op, or they send their kids to our, the same private school that we send our kids to, right? And it's kind of like you, you wake up one day and you go, I've got a ton of friends, and it's really nice that we all happen to be Christian. That's very different than what Paul has. Paul has gospel partnerships. It's the ministry and the message and the mission of Jesus are at the center of that relationship, and so they pray together. So they talk about, they confess sin to each other. They, 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 they do mission in life together. And this Sosthenes guy, you find out in Acts chapter 18, he was the ruler of the synagogue, and he comes to Christ under Paul's preaching. He was a religiously lost person. This is what happens. Religiously lost people come to Christ. And it says that they beat him up afterwards, right? Because religious people get mad if you try to leave their church, <laughs> okay? So they beat up Sosthenes. And, and at the end of the letter, we're told, after they make disciples there and establish leaders, that Paul and Sosthenes go somewhere else. Paul actually writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, which connects it to what we just did. Paul is hanging out with Timothy, discipling Timothy, while he's writing the letter of 1 Corinthians. Pretty cool. And while he's in Corinth, planting the Corinthian church, guess what letter he wrote while, he's in first, while he was uh, planting Corinth, or, uh, the Corinthian church? He writes Romans. Unbelievable. So he's establishing the Corinthian church while writing the greatest, many would say, the greatest book of the Bible. And so what I want us to see is in verse 2, Paul tells us his theological conviction about the church. And this, this, this is why the church is so important. This is why Paul cares about the church. This is why Paul is going to deal with problems head on. Here's why. It's, it's a very simple verse. I'm just going to read half of it. Verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Here's what he's saying. The church belongs to God. Have you ever showed up at church and you go, I think the deacons think this church belongs to them. <laughs> right? I think the committee on committees thinks this church belongs to them, right? For God so loved the world, he did not send a committee, right? Uh, you think, I think this pastor thinks the church belongs to him. I think those three families think the church belongs to them. I think the wealthy five, wealthiest five givers thinks the church belongs to them, right? I mean, if you want to know, and today we're going to talk about division. If you want to know how does division happen in a church, we know everyone shows up with their own agenda. That's it. Oh, this is what I want for my kids. This is what I want for my kids. This is what I want for my life. Do you have this ministry for me? Right? It's the cruise ship mentality versus the military mentality, right? The wartime ship. It's like, we're all headed somewhere together on mission. This isn't a cruise ship where everyone gets, you know, whatever they want all the time. And so it's, it says, here, here it says, it's the church of God. And then I want you to see, and we're going to read these quickly. Paul just is like, he's all about Jesus, I mean, you know, one of my takeaways reading these first nine verses is like, we just need to talk more about Jesus. I mean, here, look what he says, All right, verse two. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, here's what sanctified means, changed. So you're gonna wonder, Paul, how can you be so hopeful because there's a guy in this church, in the Corinthian church, who is sleeping with his stepmom and bragging about it. How can you be hopeful? There are people getting drunk in church during the Lord's Supper. That's happening. Like, how can you be so hopeful? There's all kinds of deviant sexual behavior happening in the church. Paul, why are you so positive? Because I believe Jesus can change people. That's it. Here's what he says. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. So you're called out of the world, out of sin, out of slavery, out of rebellion, out of foolishness, and you're called together. With all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He just can't stop talking about Jesus. Verse four, I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. 
See, most of us, when we see people, we see two things, nature and nurture, all the time. It's like, right, have you ever thought this? That's just how they are. That's just how they were raised. You get, sometimes you get real discouraged about your spouse, maybe. Well, her mother's just like this, too. Right? You go, oh, there's no hope, right? And, and, and actually, this is exactly how she's raised, and she's been affirmed in this her whole life. So what are you thinking? You're thinking nature and nurture. You're not thinking grace. We need to think more grace. God can change this person. God can work in this. Grace is not a concept. Grace is not some abstract, intangible thing. The grace of God is God's goodness and power because of Christ toward us. That can forgive and that can change and that can transform. This is why Paul's going to be so hopeful. Look what he continues to say. Verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you, are wait, as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at verse 9. This is his final positive word before he has to say a lot of hard things. Here's what he says. God is faithful. God keeps his promises. God does what he says. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's what he's saying. That you have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another because of what Christ has done. That what Christ did on the cross is he reconciled us vertically and horizontally. That's what Christ did. And the New Testament ethic is this. Become who God says you already are. It's not, it's not, religion is go work so God will love you. That's religion. We don't believe in that. Uh, Christianity is identity before activity. This is who you are. You're the body of Christ. Stop being divided. That's identity. Know who you are and then live out of it. It's who before do. It's who you are before what you do. It's what you are positionally before what you become practically or progressively. This is the, you have to understand this. It's like, God has called me pure, so I'm going to live a pure life. God has made me a son or a daughter, so I'm going to live like that. I'm going to live out of the identity that God has given me. And then in verses 10 through 17, we're going to get into it right now. He's going to just talk about it. Here's the big idea in verses 10 through 17. Sin separates, but Jesus unites. This is what Paul wants us to understand. Sin is that which wants to separate, Jesus unites. Sin wants to take us apart, Jesus is here to bring us back together. And I want you to see this. this is, I'm going to read all of it to you. In verses 10 through 17, here's what it says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgments. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, that was probably a community group, um, <laughs> that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. I love it. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's like, okay, I forgot something. <laughs> I baptized one other guy. Uh, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. I want us to learn a couple things, and I'm real passionate about this first thing, which is Paul talks about how to deal with problems. And I don't want us to miss this, because problems aren't going away in your life, right? I mean, what, what's the problem in your life? The problem in your life is you keep having problems, right? <laughs> That's the problem. They're, they're not going away. And so, and most problems that we have tend to be relationships, right? Because your, your life is only as good as your relationships, and so what, what happens is we have to learn how to deal with problems. How does Paul deal with problems? 
personally and directly. Right? Paul's like, I'm going to talk about it, right? I'm going to name that which shouldn't be named. I'm going to talk about the elephant in the room. What do we do with problems? We tend to ignore them and hope they'll go away. Right? And a good lesson to learn in life is problems don't go away, they only increase over time. It's like you get a, you know, you get a bill from the government and, uh, or tax something, you know, some kind of tax bill. It's like, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to know how much I owe. Well, does it get any better if you avoid it? What if you come back to that thing in three years after not looking, to it, looking at it? You realize it just got a lot bigger and you owe a lot more. That's how life works. Problems only increase if they're not dealt with. Most people don't want to admit, but most of us lie. No one lies to you more than you, right? And so we lie, we justify. So first of all, we don't want to admit we have a problem and someone tells us it, you know, and it's like, they, you know, and so then what we do is we justify it, right? That's the, that's the second thing we do instead of dealing with our problems. We justify them. We say things like, well, I'm only doing this because my wife put on all that weight. I'm acting this way because of how my boss is treating me. That's what it is. Or the famous you know, thing that millennials want to do. It's how my parents treated me. It's like, well, okay, those might be explanations, but they're not excuses for, for how you're living. So what Paul does is he deals with it directly. Look what he does. A couple things. First of all, he says, I appeal to you. So that, that's the language. It literally means I come alongside you. I come down at your level. I want to talk with this, like a friend, right? What you always want to do is you want to leverage relationship before you have to leverage position. Sometimes you have to leverage position. Sometimes you just got to say, sorry, I'm the leader in this. Sorry, my name's dad. And, and I'm pulling the dad card or the mom card. You know, or you got to just say, you know, what every kid doesn't want to hear about, because I said so. That's why, okay? But, but in general, you don't want to do that. When you, when you don't have to do that, you want to leverage relationships. So Paul says, I appeal to you. And then he says, I appeal to you, brother. So he talks, he says, listen, here's what you have to understand when you're going to have division right? When you're going to have all these problems. You have to understand that you have to fight like family. Now, how does family fight? This is an important concept. Family fights by, by saying this first, we're not going anywhere. That's it, right? I mean, who, by the way, who do you fight with more than anyone? Your family, right? When you're a kid, who do you fight with? Your siblings. When you're a teenager, who do you fight with? Your parents. When you get married, who do you fight with? Your spouse. When you have kids, who do you fight with? Your spouse and your kids, right? <laughs> when your kids get older, who do you fight with? Your in-laws, it's like there's so much, and so how do you fight as a family? You have to basically say, I'm not going anywhere. That's how you fight as a family. We're, we're, I'm completely committed, so we're going to work this out. This is why you never say the D word ever, even as a joke or when you're really mad. You don't say the word divorce. Because you're like, look, it's not an option. And we fight differently if there's a window or a door somewhere called divorce. We fight differently, right? And Americans are the worst at this. We just pull the like, well, great, I'm switching careers, done, not dealing with that anymore. I'm leaving that, I'll just go to a different school. I'll just leave the city. I'll just go to a different church. We just pull these different levers. And, and then, then we go somewhere else, we wonder why we have the same problems with different people. It's like, okay, well, everywhere you go, there you are, okay? <laughs> That's why you're, you're like, I, and this is, by the way, this is why serial divorces is, the reason that the divorce rate is so high is serial divorces. It's because most people get divorced in the first 10 years, because it's the hardest 10 years. And then they go and they, and they re-enter the romantic phase with somebody else, and they think, oh, this will change everything. No, it's the same romantic phase you had with your first person. And what you're going to do is you're going to end up reliving and having the same problems again. You're going to have the same marriage with a different person is what you're going to have. And so we have to be committed to dealing with these problems. And then he appeals to authority. 
right? So he says, by the name, the name of the Lord Jesus, that means the authority, okay? Authority is a good thing. Authoritarianism is not a good thing. Being a dictator is not a good thing. Totalitarian governments are not a good thing. But authority is a good thing. Authority basically says, we both need to appeal to something higher. Because I could be wrong, and you could be right. Or you could be wrong, and I could be right. Or we both could be wrong. And we need to appeal to something higher. So he's dealing with this, and then look what he wants us to do. If you look back at verse 10, here's what he's appealing. He's appealing that they would be unified. Look at verse 10. He says it five different times. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, here it is first, that all of you agree, and that's the language of unity, okay? And that there be no divisions, that's the second time, okay? That there be no divisions among you, but that you be united, that's the third time. In the same mind, that's the fourth time. And the same judgment. Five times he talks about unity and division. I mean, by the way, the, the word that we always use all the time, community, 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 community groups, break it apart. Common unity. That's what community means. You can't have community without a common unity. Now, here's what I've been trying to think, figure out this week. Why is this the first issue Paul addresses? There's other issues. You could argue there are bigger issues going on in the church. There are more shock. I mean, is division that shocking? It's like there are some more shocking issues. I think here's why division has to be dealt with first. If you're not unified, you, we can't do anything else. We can't deal with all the other issues, right? And this works in marriage. It's like if, if your marriage isn't unified, you can't deal with anything else, right? I, I've seen this before. You see financial calamity come to two different houses, houses, and one makes it and one doesn't. Why? It's like, well, the other didn't realize there was no unity. They just had enough money to live separate lives. That happens all the time. So they weren't really a unified family. They just had enough money to live separately and not even notice it and be comfortable. Then another family, it's like they, they, they had this calamity come to them, but they were tight they, and they could handle it. You can handle a lot of things if you're unified. A church can handle a lot of things if it's unified. We believe here that if the community group leader and, uh, and his wife and the host leader and his wife, if they have a good relationship, that, they can handle all the crazy kids that show up in a community group because it's like a good marriage. It's like, let's be unified here and we can handle all of this. Now, the norm though is division in our nation, in our church, in our families, in ourselves. Division is everywhere. We live in a very divided nation, right? Is it the most divided time ever in our nation? No, we did have a civil war. And, 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 and I'm not a historian, but I've heard, you know, some, mo, mo, many would say late 60s and under Nixon was more divisive. But we live in a very divided time. Why? Because we can choose our news. Because you can live in whatever corner of the internet you want to live in with everybody who agrees with you and makes fun of those who don't agree with you. And we can all do that. And our churches are divided, right? How many churches it's been like one committee versus another committee, one staff member versus another staff member, one elder versus another elder. Our churches are divided. And when they're divided, they're ineffective and unattractive. They have sideways energy and they look like Jesus doesn't make a difference in our lives. And Paul's passionate about this. There's division in churches. I, I had a seminary professor, and I remember in class, he used to tell us, he said, hey guys, and he would tell us wherever he's flying this week. He's like, hey, I'm flying to New Jersey because, you know, there's an elder board that's fighting. And he had this ministry where he literally would fly and spend weekends at churches trying to help them because they were so messed up. Or how many of our families are divided, right? I mean, division and divorce, same root word. And it's like these, I mean, how many of our families, like, don't raise your hand, but it's like, one of your aunts still doesn't talk to another one of your aunts over something goofy that happened seven years ago that no one will name 
and get in the same room and talk about it. So what, what's the other option? You don't go on family vacations with them anymore. And they don't show up at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it's awkward for everybody. Okay, we're, we're, we're divided internally, right? Paul talks about this. The thing, Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I hate, these are the very things I keep doing. I think good Christians struggle with, I want purity. Sometimes I want pornography. I want to be a person of integrity. I have secrets. Right? Listen, here's how we know you're divided. If, how we know we're all divided. If we weren't divided, we would all be in perfect shape. Because we would just be like, that's it, I'm eating healthy. I'm working out, I'm exercising. It's like, nobody can do that to themselves. Like, we're all like, we're, right? It's like, you want to be in good shape, and you love Bluebell ice cream. And it's, right? You're divided. We're all, we're all divided. And then unity is very, very hard. So, you know, there are certain things that don't need to be explained, and then there are certain things that need to be explained. You know, like, for example, poverty actually needs no explanation. I'm talking technically here. Like, it's not hard to understand poverty. It's like, what's hard to understand is wealth. Like, how can one person work for five days and provide for a bunch of people for seven days? It takes a long time to explain how wealth can be created and sustained. Poverty is super easy to understand. And chaos, super easy to understand. Order, very difficult to understand. Same way, division, disunity, very easy to understand. It's a natural condition of things if we don't work at it. Uh, unity, very difficult to understand how it works. This is why Paul always talks about keeping the bond and the unity of peace. So I want to talk about what unity is and what unity isn't. Unity is not uniformity, okay? I, I'm thankful for the military. The military has uniformity. We'll cut your hair, you'll wear this outfit, you'll all live together, you'll march the same ways, you'll all have the same rank. Basically, we depersonalize you. And we kind of put on you all these external things, and there's a uniformity, and that's okay because it works for the military. It doesn't work for the church. We care about unity. Unity is, about, unity is not about me minimizing your differences, and we have a lot of differences. We all have differences. It's about maximizing what we have in common. And unity is always about mission, right? Jesus predicted, here's what's interesting. Jesus predicted the growth of the church, but he prayed for the unity of the church. He, you know, he talks about, hey, the church is going to grow, but, but his final prayer in John 17, this is how important unity is and how much it needs to be worked on. Jesus is praying for it before he goes to the cross, the unity of the church. And so what I want to talk about for just a little bit is what does unity look like in our church, real practically, because what Paul's writing to is to a local church. He's not saying, hey, every Christian be unified with every other Christian in the whole world. It's like, well, you're not even going to meet all the other Christians. He's saying local churches in cities need to be unified. A local church needs to be unified. So let me just share with you the four ways that we are pursuing unity in our church. I want to be just highly practical. I want you to write them down. And the, I want you to say, where am I in these things? Do I, and these are also great things, by the way, for you to do, uh, to think about with your family. Let me just give you each one. There's theological unity. Theological unity says this, we believe the same things about the most important things. That, 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 again, it's not about minimizing our differences, it's about maximizing what we have in common. So years ago, I'd, I've told you this before, some of you, I, I was doing ministry at Duke. I was a college minister there. And I, I met another college minister, well, I was told about him. He, he just got here, he's a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving minister of the gospel. And I'd never met him before, and, and I'm kind of, you know, outgoing and extroverted and gregarious and all that kind of stuff, and so I walk over to him, I think I scared him. I'd probably do it differently next time. But I basically said, we have so much in common. <laughs> and, and then I introduced myself to him. And basically, what, when, the reason I said that is, you know, he was a different age, and he was in a different life stage, and he had, you know, had a different background and grew up in a different place. And I don't think he had any kids yet. And I, we were so different in so many ways. But I knew, I was like, we believe the same things about God and sin and salvation and the creation of the world. 
and our eternal destinies. It's like, we have, I don't even care what we have different. We have so much in common. And so what we have is, I, w- I just want to tell you, what are, what are the big things that we have in common here? And by the way, I'm going to name these, and you can believe more than this, but you can't believe less if you're going to be a meaningful part of the church. We believe that God created everybody and everything. Very simple, but very important, because it means that you're made in God's image, and it means that the main way you relate to him is worship and stewardship. I love the Lord, everything he gives me is a gift, and I'm a manager and steward of everything, and it changes how I view everything. You have to understand, we believe deeply here that every one of you, myself included, is a sinner by nature and choice, that we are broken and fallen, that we have both dignity and dominion. We believe that the Bible is the written down, perfect, totally truthful word of God. We believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, rose victorious, and is going to come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe that with all of our heart. We believe there's a necessity for personal, conscious faith in Jesus Christ to transfer trust from ourselves to him. And we believe that people are actually born again and changed from the inside out. We believe in the need for personal mission and personal evangelism and that everybody, though there are many choices on earth, there are two in eternity, heaven and hell. And we believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell, and we believe that good, that, um, good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. Amen. And so this is, that would be, I could say much more, but I can't say less than that. That's what we believe here. And that's what unites us. We may have a lot of secondary and tertiary beliefs differently. We may have different political beliefs, but we have the same beliefs on the most central and important things. Secondly is philosophical unity. This is important to understand. Basically, here's philosophical unity. What do we want to do with what we believe? It's what's also called a theological vision. What are we doing? And why are we doing it that way? And so it's how we do things. Every family has to go, what do I believe, right? You you wanna have theological unity with your husband or your wife. And then you wanna have philosophical unity. How are we gonna educate the kids based on what the Bible says? There's options. What, what, What are we gonna do? Philosophical unity, let me give you a couple for our church. It's how we do things. And it's for us for now, okay? Here's what I mean. We do groups. We're groups. We're groups. We're groups. Community groups, DNA groups. We're all about groups. Are there churches that are healthy and that are not doing groups? Yes. Are there churches that are doing Sunday school and they're healthy? Yes. It's how do you want to live out the value of the theological truth of discipleship, the theological value of relationships. People live that out differently. We, we, we believe in a dynamic kids' ministry. Some churches don't even have kids' ministries. And they're good, godly churches. And they say, well, we want the kids in here with us. And that's, that's a value. It, it all depends on what are you valuing and how do you want to live it out. We have a super high commitment culture here. Okay? We believe that every Christian here should take personal responsibility for the Great Commission. Which leads to the third thing. We have uh, theological unity, philosophical unity. We have missional unity. Missional unity is like to say it bluntly, what's our scorecard? How do we know if we're winning? What's our bullseye, right? Most people shoot arrows, and wherever the arrows lie, they draw bullseyes around them. <laughs> That's not what we're doing. We have a bullseye. We know what we want to do. We want to make disciples, mobilize them for mission, and we want to do it in an environment of prayer and worship. So what are we doing in the kids' ministry? That's it. I just told you. We're making disciples. We're mobilizing them for mission. We're doing it in an environment of prayer and worship. What are we doing here right now in this hour? We're making disciples. We're mobilizing you guys for mission. 
We're doing all of it in an environment of prayer and worship. If you come back in 10 years, this is what we'll still be doing. This is it. We care about physical and felt needs, but we care much more about forever needs. We pack 350 backpacks for Cook Elementary and we thank God for it. But we are not just a nonprofit who meets physical needs. We don't have a political mission. We have a mission to make disciples, mobilize them for mission, and do it in an environment of prayer and worship. Now, what's, what, here's what happens, though. Let's bring it down even one more level. And churches like ours, people think they're missional because they're part of a missional church. Every once in a while, someone will say something, we need to do serve the city again. We really need to serve our city. It's like, there's 364 other days of the year for you to serve the city. For you to serve with your community group, or for you to serve with your family, or for you to serve with somebody else. Don't think of mission just as what we all do together. Because people will do that all the time. We're so missional, we've baptized 100 people this year, but I've not told one person about Jesus for the last five years of my life. It's like, you're not missional. That's okay, we're gonna, there's grace, we're gonna, there's forgiveness, we're gonna all grow, we're gonna repent. But the great temptation is to think you're missional because videos up here are about other people doing mission and you watched it. That doesn't mean that you are missional. What we want is, that's why we gave you a frank and blessed list. All of us are taking personal responsibility for the Great Commission, which leads to the fourth type of unity, right? This is important, there's theological unity. We believe the same things about the most important things. There's philosophical unity. We wanna do things a certain way. It's not a prison, but it's a home. We wanna be aligned in how we do that. There's missional unity. We know what we're aiming toward. We don't wanna have mission creep and mission drift. And there's relational unity. Relational unity is we actually like each other. And we actually prioritize, we actually care about our church relationships. And we show up five minutes early and we stay five minutes late because we care. And we wanna meet some people. And in a church of our size, the main two ways that you're gonna get relationally connected to our church is community groups and serving teams. And, we, and, and, and if, if each of you would come five minutes early, stay five minutes late, and have one person from the church in your home every month, you would begin to feel this relational unity like you've never felt it before. So these are all the types of unity. And Paul is now going to tell us in what was going on with their church and what was particularly dividing them. Look at verse, I believe it's verse 12. Verse 11. Here's what Paul says. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, and look, there's four faction groups, right? I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, and that would be Peter, or I follow Christ. This is interesting. Here's another way that division begins to happen. The messenger becomes more important than the message. And this, is, this, is, this happens all... So, Public speaking or being an orator is one of the oldest professions. And being a pastor is a very, very old profession. And it's a profession particularly in which people feel very close to you and you're very helpful to people. And then they feel very connected to you and they want to follow and they want to learn and this is great. But what's happening here, and this can be unhealthy, is we start to have a, does this happen today? We start to have a celebrity culture. Right? This is the first celebrity culture. It gets weird now. Like some of you will know about this, but there's, there's an there's a Instagram um, account called Preachers and Sneakers. We live in an interesting world. Okay, and so what this is, it's about big-time preachers and the shoes that they wear. Okay? Um, and then there's another account called Prophets and Watches. And it's about big-time pastors and the watches they wear. 
goofy, but it, it is what it is. Uh, uh, but what's interesting is there's, there's so here, here's what he's saying. He's saying there, there was these four faction groups in the church. Now, there's nothing wrong with following a man or a woman, right? Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. But people and pastors and peers and professors and parents and whatever else, they're to be pointers. You know, look through me to him. You know, I, if you're following anything, follow the Christ-like character that you see in me. If there's anything unchrist-like, don't follow that. And we always want to be pointing away. But here, look, I want you to see what happens, because this is what still happens in churches. I, the Bible is so relevant. So when Paul says, he's pointing to a group that says, I follow Paul. Why would they say I follow Paul? Here's why. He founded the church. Do churches still struggle to move on and learn from new leadership because they keep talking about the founding pastor who died 20 years ago? Right? This is Every pastor is an interim pastor. Right? We know that the average pastor pastors for 30 years. I've been pastoring here for five years, so hopefully you'll have me for 25 more years, okay? Um, every pastor pastors, or most pastors, the average senior pastor pastors for 30 years. He retires at 65, and they replace him at an average age of a 43-year-old. And then what happens? Everybody who loved the senior pastor for 30 years and saw his maturity all the way to age 65 now get mad that he's replaced by a 43-year-old, Right? The founding pastor syndrome, it happens. And Paul's like, look, look, I was just a pointer. I was pointing beyond myself to somebody else. Paul also was a great theologian. Some people just, they can't, I can only learn from him. I can only read books by Zondervan or by Crossway Publishers. I knew one guy, he only read the Puritans. I'm like, they've been dead for a long time. There's other people to read. The second is Apollos, right? Apollos, we know in the book of Acts, Apollos was an incredible speaker, and that's another reason people follow certain people, right? And Apollos had good theology. I mean, some people, they just, they're, just, they're really good speakers. They've got lots of heat, not lots of light. But people follow them. There's nothing wrong with Apollos. He would come into town, and he would do pre- He was Matt Chandler, okay? He was David Platt. He was John Piper. I mean, I don't know whoever that is. He was J.D. Greer. Whoever that is for you. He was this incredible teacher, preacher, communicator, and people fell in love with the style of the message more than the substance of the message. They thought, I can only listen to him. I hope he's preaching this week. Right? This is one of the reasons, like, yes, I am the, the lead teacher and preacher here, but this is why we have other people coming up and preaching. Right? And the other week, Pastor Stephen was up here. He's preaching. Afterwards, one of, one of uh, the members of our church comes up to me and says, that was probably the best sermon I've ever heard at Two Cities Church. And I thought, by Stephen, you mean, right? <laughs> But I, I'm kidding. But, but, but it was really a great moment because it's like, this is exactly right. We want to have, you know, I remember the first time Stephen ever spoke, and some of you maybe, if you haven't come around here, you haven't seen him yet, but he'll be back up again. But um, with Stephen, you know, I remember someone else came up to me and said, finally, somebody preaching in cowboy boots. It's about time. <laughs> but all right, all, it takes all types of pastors to reach all types of people. It takes all types of Christians to reach all types of people. And so this is, then the third is Cephas. Now, here's what's interesting. From everything we can find out and figure out, Cephas, who is Peter, he actually never visited Corinth. So Apollos came and preached, and Paul planted. So here's, here's what Cephas was. Somebody that they were following that they just heard about but didn't know personally. How many people are doing that right now, right? You're listening. Not, not Nothing wrong with this, but nothing wrong with listening to a podcast, listening to different preachers and stuff. But a lot of people end up listening to somebody that they never know. Someone that can't be any authority in their life. Someone that they actually can't model the the life of Christ from. Someone that they don't know personally. And then finally he says, I follow Christ. And you think, well, that sounds pretty good. 
Most commentators I read, though, said these were the super spiritual people who said, I don't need a human leader, I'll just follow Jesus. And that also happens, right? This is like the dad who wants to do home church, right? He doesn't want anyone else. It's like, and all his kids are like super embarrassed by it. Like, dad, come on. This is an issue of authority with you, like everything in your life. You can't get along with anybody. So it's always, I follow Jesus. I don't need anyone else. It's usually a sign of, I, I, no, I can't submit to authority. It's normally what that's a sign of. And so what Paul does is he, he reminds us of who we are in Christ by talking about baptism. Look with me here. Verse 13, is Christ divided? And this is, by the way, a good thing to do when people are confused. You ask questions. He's applying the logic of the gospel to their situation. Is Christ divided? No! Christ gave all of himself. Christ was a unified person. Is Christ divided? Is his body divided? No, you are the body of Christ. You shouldn't be divided then. Was Paul crucified for you? It's like, don't forget what the main thing is. The main thing is not the preaching and teaching of the word. It's what the preaching and teaching of the word was pointing you to. Christ crucified. Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? He's like, look, some, some people are so worried about who baptized them and where it was, right? Have you ever heard of those people? Oh, I got baptized in the Jordan River. And it was by pastor so-and-so. It's like, listen, what needs to be central is Christ's name with your baptism, not the person or the place you were baptized so, look, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you. I love that. He's like, I'm so glad I didn't baptize any of you. <laughs> I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that, that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Here's what's interesting. Baptism is a picture of dying with Christ, rising from the dead, and being connected to the church. It's a beautiful picture of the unity of the church. Here's what they were doing. They were taking something God gave to unify the church, and they were using it to bring division. And we do the exact same thing. Do you understand that music is a gift from God to unify the church? That's what music is. And what music is about is about everybody singing together. But what do we do? It's too loud. It's too soft. It's not my style. It's like, okay, wrong, wrong. We're not taking something that God meant to unify and use it to divide. God gives leaders to unify. That's what leadership does. Leadership brings unity. And then we say, well, I like this guy better than this guy. No, 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 you're wrong. The Holy Spirit is given to unify the church. And we argue on who has what spiritual gifts and what we can do. God help us. And so what he ends with is he ends with Christ. Again, in verse 17, I want to read this to you as we close. He says this, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, literally the good news, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's reminding us one last time of the cross of Christ and how the cross of Christ is the great unifying event in human history. When Jesus Christ hung there on that cross, he unified and reconciled us. We place our trust in him. First to God and secondly to each other. And when you're standing at the cross, humbly looking up at the cross, it's impossible to be a prideful, divisive person. Because when you look at the cross, you realize we, all of us are sinners. All of us need to be saved by grace. Some of us sin and struggle in different ways. Some of us need grace in different areas, but we're all sinners saved by grace. When we are divisive, the church becomes ineffective and unattractive. 
And what we want to be to the world is we want to be effective on mission and we want to be an attractive alternative and a counterculture in our city. And so I've asked the worship team to play a new song, to lead us together a new song. In just a minute, I'm going to pray and we're going to stand and sing this. And it's a new song and it's all about standing on the name of Christ. Because that's what Paul appealed to in the midst of all this. He said, guys, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're standing on the name of Christ. That's the most important thing that unifies the church. And how beautiful would it be if in a very divided country we had a very unified church? I'm praying that God's going to give us that grace so that we can be both effective in the world and attractive to the world. Let's pray. Lord, that's our prayer. Help us to be effective. Help us to be attractive. Lord, help us to be unified. Jesus, you did in your final prayer pray for the unity of the church, and you accomplished that unity by going ahead of us, by living a perfect, undivided life, by dying on the cross to bring us together, by rising from the dead, and for bringing from all over, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, building a church, Lord. Thank you for your grace, Lord. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.